Okay, so we have an opportunity to do something a little bit different. Um, I'm going to be reading from The Earth's Biosphere by Vaclav Smil. Um, this class is in preparation to do some of the kind of weirder, like astrobiology, um, astrophysics, space politics, some unusual things. So the idea with the biosphere is to kind of get a perspective on what the Earth does in those kinds of extraterrestrial contexts and then how it performs, you know, vital human functions as well as what it looks like compared to some other planets and, and how that sense of understanding can help us create terraforming events and generate kind of a new perspective on how to develop spaceflight and and protections for the Earth itself here as our sustainable home. So we'll start with chapter one today. Uh, this is The Evolution of the Idea from Vernadesky to a Science of the Global Environment. A new character is imparted to the planet by this powerful cosmic force. The radiations that pour upon the Earth cause the biosphere to take on properties unknown to lifeless planetary surfaces and thus transform the face of the Earth. Vladimir Ivanovich Vernadaski, Biosfera. The Earth is not just an ordinary planet. Antoine de Saint-Espure, the Little Prince. Unlike so many ideas that have unclear or contested origins, there's no dispute about the first use, use of the term biosphere. Edward Swiss, 1831-1914, a famous Austrian geologist who, together with Charles, Charles Lyell and Louis Agassiz, was one of the three greatest 19th century synthesizers of the rising discipline of earth science. Suez became eventually known for his monumental, although now quite outdated, three-volume set, Das Atlas de Erde, which summarized the contemporary understanding of all major geological features of the earth. In fact, Suez literally tossed the new term away just once and without an explicit definition in his pioneering book on the genesis of the Alps. Swiss noted, one thing seems to be foreign on this large celestial body consisting of spheres, namely organic life, but this life is limited to a determined zone at the surface of the lithosphere. The plant, whose deep roots plunge into the soil to feed and which at the same time rises into the air to breathe, is a good illustration of organic life in the region of interaction between the upper sphere and the lithosphere, and on the surface of continents it is possible to single out an independent biosphere. This is peculiarly limited and flawed definition. It appears that Swiss did not even consider microorganisms that are abundant both in the lower layer of the atmosphere and in the ocean. And perhaps Swiss's professional occupation with crustal forms and orogenesis explains his garing exclusion of marine life from his concept of the biosphere. And seeing the biosphere as independent, self-standing in the original, it is an inexplicable denial of the myriads of links between organisms and their environment. In any case, the new term remained an oddity, and it took a long time before it entered the scientific vocabulary. Five decades had to pass before a Russian scientist reintroduced the concept, defined it in great detail, and put it at the core of his interdisciplinary examination of life on the Earth. And incredibly, only more than four decades after that rigorous reintroduction did the concept become widely known outside Russia and begin providing stimulation for long-overdue fundamental research as well as for raising public awareness of the need to protect the Earth's environment. Two developments pushed the concept of the biosphere to center stage of scientific attention during the last generation of the 20th century. Concerns about unprecedented rates and scales of anthropogenic environmental change and global monitoring of the Earth's environment from increasingly sophisticated satellites. As a result, few challenges facing civilization during the 21st century will be as daunting and as critical as the preservation of the biosphere's integrity. Vernadaski's Biosphere. Vladimir Ivanovich Vernadaski was the scientist who elaborated the concept of the biosphere and who is now generally acknowledged as the originator of a new paradigm in life studies, which is what I'm interested in, by the way. Vernadaski belonged to that remarkable group of Russian researchers and thinkers who flourished during the last decades of the 19th and the first decades of the 20th century and whose contributions proved so important for the progress of many disciplines because of their bold departures in new directions. The group's most illustrious names include Dmitry Ivanovich Mendeleev, the author of the Periodic Table of Elements, Vasily Vasilievich Dukhuchevs, the, modern modern, the founder of modern soil science, Ivan Petrovich Pavlov, Ilya Ilyich Mekhnikov, Nobelians, 
in medicine and physiology, Konstantin Eduardovich Silyokoski, the visionary pioneer of space flight, and Sergei Winograyevsky, discoverer of the chemotropic metal metabolism in bacteria and one of the creators of modern microbiology. Vernadesky's scientific career advanced smoothly. Born into a well-off Ukrainian family, his father was a professor of political economy in Kiev and Moscow. He was also engaged in liberal politics. He studied natural sciences at the Faculty of Physics and Mathematics in St. Petersburg University, where both Mendeleev and Dukhochev were among his professors. Mineralogy was his specialty. In 1888-1889, Vernadesky spent two years studying in Munich and in Paris, where he worked with Henri Louis Le Chatelier and Pierre Curie. Le Chatelier was an expert in high temperature studies and in behavior of gas mixtures, and he remains best known for his eponymous principle. Every change in one of the factors of an equilibrium occasions a rearrangement of the system in such a direction that the factor in question experiences a change in the sense opposite to the original change. Or every action has an equal and opposite reaction, even in high temperature gas studies. Pierre Curie was a co-recipient uh, with his wife, Marie Curie Sklodowski and Henri Becquerel, in 1903 of the Nobel Prize in Physics for their work on radiation phenomena. Verdasky's doctoral thesis was submitted to the Moscow University in 1897. A year later, he became an extraordinary, became an extraordinary, and in 1902, an ordinary professor. His first book, Osnovi Crystallography, Fundamentals of Crystallography, came out two years later, and in 1905, the year of Russia's first democratic revolution, Vernadsky became a founding member of the Constitutional Democratic Party, between 1908 and 1918, a member of its central committee. Members of the party were known as cadets, the name derived from the first letters of the party's Russian name. And in 1909, Vernadsky turned from crystallography to geochemistry, and three years later, he was elected a full member of the Russian Academy of Sciences. Shortly after the beginning of World War I, he founded and chaired the Commission for the Study of Natural Productive Sources, KEPS, whose goal was to assist the country's military effort. Prominent scientists also participated in the war effort in Germany, France, the United Kingdom, and later the United States foreshadowing a much greater impact of science during World War II. In the spring of 1960, Vrndaski went to Crimea for the dacha of Mikhail Bokunin, brother of the famous anarchist. Then in July, he prospected with his favorite student, Alexander E. Fersman, for bauxite in the Atlai Mountains. Afterwards, he spent several weeks at his own comfortable dacha in Shishikai that he built in 1911 on the high shore of the Pasal River, halfway between Poltova and Mirogorod. These were the months of the places where he began to think systemically and to make notes with exceptionally broad intentions in mind about living matter as the transformer of solar energy and its planetary importance. His intentions were to go beyond the unsatisfactory ways in which contemporary biology was dealing with life, examining it either without any references to its environment or merely as adapting to diverse environmental conditions. Fossil fuels, carbonate and phosphate deposits, coral reefs, soils, and atmospheric gases were obvious manifestations of life's importance in actively shaping and transforming the Earth. Verdasky intended to answer a critical question that he jotted down on a small piece of paper preserved in his archive. What importance has the whole organic world in the general scheme of chemical reactions on the Earth? But his answers had to wait. Soon after he posed that question, the old world of the Russian Empire fell apart. The revolutionary regime that overthrew the Tsar in February 1917 was short-lived. It itself was overthrown, with German help, by Lenin's Bolsheviks in October 1917, and after years of civil war, a new communist state emerged victorious, and the Union of Socialist Soviet Republics was officially established in November 1921. The year, 1917, so fateful for Russia, was personally eventful and tragic for Vernadsky. His daughter, Nyuta, died of tuberculosis, which he too contracted. As a prominent cadet, he became a deputy to S.F. Oldenberg, the Minister of Education in the Provisional Government. On November 6, shortly after the Communist takeover, he wrote in his diary, very sad and apprehensive about the future. Yet he was also lucky. 
When the Bolshevik Revolution came in 1917, cadets were among the principal enemies to be eliminated by the new regime, and thousands of them and hundreds of thousands of others perished in violence, anarchy, and hunger of the subsequent civil war. Three years of disjointed, perilous, and uncertain life were ahead of him. In 1918, Vernadsky fled Moscow, organized the Academy of Sciences in a temporarily free Ukraine, and became its first president. Later, he was separated and reunited with his family, got ill with typhoid in February, and two months later became a deputy rector, and in September, a rector of the Toride University in Semferopol. He was joined in this Crimean refuge, protected by General Wrangel's army, the reactionary whites in the communist parlance, by such outstanding scientists as Yofi and Tam. Abraham Fedorovich Yofi, whose main achievements were in crystal physics, was the founder of one of the USSR's principal schools of physics, and Igor Evgenievich Tam was a co-recipient of the 1958 Nobel Prize in Physics. The communist reconquest of the Crimea in November 1920 ended abruptly that episode of Vernadovsky's career. Vernadovsky's career. His son Georgi evacuated Wrangel's retreating forces, but Vernadovsky reigned. A letter from N.A. Shmashko, Lenin's commissaire for healthcare, spared Vernadovsky any persecution. Moreover, he, with few others, were assigned a special railway car in which to return to Moscow. Soon after his arrival in Moscow, the family moved into Petrograd, where Vrindasky tried to resume his work and accepted Fersman's invitation to do research in Russia's north, on the Kola Peninsula near Murmansk. But on July 14, 1921, Vrindasky was arrested and brought to the city's Cheka headquarters. Without an intervention at the highest level, there would have been only no hope. No release could happen automatically, only shooting happened automatically. After spending a day in prison, he was, to everyone's surprise, released following two hours of interrogation. A.P. Karpinsky, the president of the academy, sent telegrams to Lenin, Semashko, and Lunacharsky, the commissaire for education, stretching that, stressing that Vrndansky never fought against Soviet power. Within a day after his release, he left his daughter Nina, a medical student, for COLA. In May 1929, Vrndatsky, his wife, and Nina got passports to travel via Prague, where his son Georgi settled as an immigrant to Paris. They arrived on July 8th, and their stay was to be just for one academic year. Vrndatsky's Sorbonne lectures on geochemistry were published as a book, and his stay was extended with the universities and the Rosenthal's Foundation's help as he searched for funds in the United States to establish a biogeochemical laboratory. Would he have joined thousands of Russians intellectuals in exile if this laboratory idea were never realized? Would he have joined thousands of Russian intellectuals in exile if this laboratory idea were realized? From Paris, in a letter to his own friend, Ivan Ilyich Petrovkevich, one of the leaders of the pre-revolutionary democratic opposition to the Tsarist regime living in exile in Prague, he made his position and his sense of duty quite clear. If I were much younger, I would emigrate. My universal feelings are much stronger than my nationalist feelings. But now it is difficult and impossible, as one always needs to lose several years on securing a position. I have no illusions. To live in Russia is extraordinarily difficult. Even if my attempts of moving to America were successful, I would still feel obliged to return and then to leave. But his last year spent in France was hardly wasted in waiting. He nearly completed a new book, whose beginnings went to those pre-revolutionary wartime thoughts and notes. The family left Paris in December 1925, and in February 1926, staying again with his son in Prague, Verdansky penned the preface to his new book. In its very first sentence, he made clear what made it unique. Among numerous works on geology, none has adequately treated the biosphere as a whole, and none has viewed it, as it will be viewed here, as a single orderly manifestation of the mechanisms of the uppermost region of the planet theorist's crest. He stressed that he did not want to construct a new hypothesis, but strive to remain on the solid ground of empirical generalization. Vrndatsky and his wife returned home to rename city Leningrad in March 1926. Biosphere was published just three months later, and the book's printing of 2,000 copies sold out fast. Biosfera was made up of two lengthy scientific essays, the first entitled Biosphere in the Cosmos, containing 67 sections, each one having typically between two and five paragraphs, the other, The Domain of Life, containing 160 sections. Reading Biosfera at the beginning of the 21st century is a very interesting experience. 
Rundansky's predilection for grand but concise generalizations continues to evoke frequent admiration at how well he set out many concepts, both fundamental and intricate, and how crisply he stated his conclusions. Inevitably, there are also generalizations and conclusions that have not withstood the test of time. Indeed, some of them were arguable even at the time in which they were written. In addition, the meaning of some statements and sentences remains opaque or altogether obscure, and there are also signs of Rondansky the mystic. But this is not a critical expose of Biosfera aimed at singling out and discussing the book's factual errors and arguable opinions. My goal here is to review, with some brief comments, those fundamental generalizations and conclusions that have remained unassailable. Only secondarily will I note some of those assertions or hypotheses that have been invalidated by subsequent research or opinions that are distinctly unfashionable today. The latter include, above all, Rondansky's progressivism, which is the very opposite of the idea of evolution driven by random mutations. The term biosphere is mentioned for the first time in the book's second sentence, but without any definition. The face of the earth viewed from celestial space presents a unique appearance, different from all other heavenly bodies. The surface that separates the planet from the cosmic medium is the biosphere, visible principally because of light from the sun, although it also receives an infinite number of other radiations from space, of which only a small fraction are visible to us. The third section would have made, I believe, a better opening if it said, Activated by radiation, the matter of the biosphere collects and redistributes solar energy and converts it ultimately into free energy capable of doing work on Earth. This biosphere plays an extraordinary planetary role. The biosphere is at least as much a creation of the sun as a result of terrestrial processes. And a few paragraphs later, Verndinsky stresses that we can gain insight into the biosphere only by considering the obvious bond that unites it to the entire cosmic mechanism. The biosphere is thus seen as a region of transformation of cosmic energy, specifically of solar radiation. Its major segments, ultraviolet, visible, and infrared, are transformed in different regions and by different means, and photosynthetic conversion of visible wavelengths producing innumerable compounds rich in free energy extends the biosphere as a thick layer of new molecular systems. Diffusion of living matter by the multiplication by the multiplication creates the ubiquity of life as organisms have developed and adapted to conditions which were initially fatal to them. Life tended to take possession of and utilize all possible space. Living matter is thus spread over the entire surface of the earth in a matter analogous to gas. As a continuous envelope and its most characteristic and essential trait is its uninterrupted movement proceeding with an inexorable and astonishing mathematical regularity. The result is life that occurs on land, penetrates all of the hydrosphere, and can be observed throughout the troposphere. It even penetrates the interior of living matter itself in the form of parasites. The section on growth contains a number of theoretical examples of the maximum possible reproductive capacities of arthropods and bacteria, and although properly stressing the importance of gaseous exchange involving living organisms, Verndinsky greatly underestimates the total mass of atmospheric oxygen concluding that it is of the same order as the existing quantity of living matter. In reality, the atmosphere contains about 1.1 ET, or 10 to the 18th T, of oxygen, whereas even the most liberal estimates of the Earth biomass no longer than 10 tetradites of fresh matter, 10 TT of fresh matter, which is mostly water. Consequently, oxygen is at least five orders of magnitude more abundant than the biomass. The remainder of the first essay is taken up largely by a discussion of photosynthesis. Here, Vrndensky also erred by concluding that the hydrosphere, a majority of the planetary surface, is always suffused with an unbroken layer of green energy transformers, and in maintaining that the total mass of green life in the ocean exceeds that on land because of the larger size of the ocean itself. The latter claim was a common misconception during the late 19th century and early decades of the 20th. In reality, the standing terrestrial phytomass is at least 200 times as large as the biomass of marine phytoplankton and macrophyta. But Verndensky presents accurate, presented accurate estimates of typical conversion efficiencies of solar radiation into new plant mass. Their large-scale averages are mostly less than 1%. The cyclical link between this living matter and the atmosphere is also rightly emphasized. The gases of the biosphere are generatively linked with living matter, which in turn determines the essential composition of the atmosphere. 
The gases of the entire atmosphere are in an equilibrium state of dynamic and perpetual exchange with living matter. Gases freed by living matter promptly return to it. Finally, Vernensky pointed out the distinction between rapid and slow cycling of dead organic matter. Although most of it is recycled rather rapidly into new living tissues, a small share leaves the biosphere for extended periods, and it returns to living matter by another, another path, thousands or millions of years afterwards. Rundinsky called the generation of this enormous mass of minerals unique to life the slow penetration into the earth of radiant energy from the sun, and adding it to his vastly exaggerated estimate of estimated of exaggerated estimate of photosynthesizers, he estimated the total weight of the biosphere as ten to the twenty-fourth G, and he concluded that the first part's last paragraph he concluded the first part's last paragraph by maintaining that although we do not understand the origin of the matter of the biosphere, it is clear that it has been functioning in the same way for billions of years. The book's second and longer part deals mostly with the spatial extent of the biosphere. In its first sentence, Verndensky acknowledges Swayze's authorship of the term biosphere as a specific life-saturated envelope of the Earth's crust. Then, a rather detailed discussion of the Earth's various spheres begins by summarizing the contemporary ideas about the planet's core, the overlying region, mantle in today's terminology, and the crust. Vernansky also introduced five separate classifications of the Earth's envelopes, thermodynamic, gaseous, chemical, paragenetic, and radiation-based. Overlaps and duplications do not make this approach very clear. As far as the organisms are concerned, Vernansky followed the tripartite division of autotrophs, heterotrophs, and mixotrophs proposed by W. Pfeiffer. Autotrophs use only inorganic matter to build their bodies, transforming raw materials into complex organic compounds. Heterotrophs must use ready-made organic compounds in their metabolism. Mixotrophs combine organic and inorganic sources of nutrients. Autotrophs include photosynthesizing organisms, not just green plants, but also many species of bacteria, and autotrophic bacteria lacking light-sensitive pigments and producing new living matter independent of solar radiation. More to be discussed in Chapter 3. Vernatsky rightly stressed the importance of single-celled organisms, monera, in the biosphere. Monera are ubiquitous, existing throughout the ocean to depths far beyond the penetration of solar radiation, and they are diverse enough to include nitrogen, sulfur, and iron bacteria. One is led to conclude that bacterial abundance is a ubiquitous and constant feature of the Earth's surface. This led him to conclude that we should therefore expect that the bacterial mass in the biosphere would far exceed the mass of green eukaryotes. Today's best appraisals confirm this beyond, a, beyond any doubt. Vernatsky also marveled at curious secondary equilibria between sulfate-reducing bacteria and autotrophic organisms that oxidize sulfides. And at an analogical exchange between autotrophic bacteria that oxidize nitrogen and heterotrophic organism, organisms that deoxidize nitrates. But he was mistaken in concluding that during the Archaean era, the quantity of living green matter and the energy of solar radiation that give it birth could not have been perceptibly different in that strange and distant time from what they are today. We now know that the solar output was actually weaker at that time, and the total mass of green matter was smaller than they are today. The remainder of the book is devoted to a fairly thorough exploration of the limits of life. Vernatsky's only cited examples of short-term toleration of extreme pressures, temperature, and radiation exposures, rather than exploring the extremes of sustainable metabolism. Some of his conclusions that are permanently valid, unless, of course, one subscribes to panspermia, which we'll evaluate in Chapter 2, include the fact that by all appearances, the natural forms of life cannot pass beyond the upper stratosphere, and that the shortest wavelengths of electromagnetic radiation are deleterious to life. Vernatsky also estimated fairly correctly the maximum expected depth of the subterranean biosphere, but other conclusions, including the maximum depth of life in the ocean, have been altered considerably with the research advances of the last two generations. After delimiting the biosphere, Vernatsky returned to biogeochemical cycles in the hydrosphere, stressing the differences between planktonic and littoral organisms, or living films in his terminology, the reducing environment in the marine mud, the realm of the anaerobic bacteria, the action of living organisms that separates calcium from the sodium, magnesium, potassium, and iron of the biosphere, even though it is similar in abundance to these elements. 
formation of the biogenic phosphorite deposits, and release of hydrogen sulfide by bacteria-reducing sulfates, polythionates, and complex organic compounds. On land, he assigned all living matter to just one living film of the soil and its fauna and flora and stressed the terrestrial life's dependence on water. The closing segment on the relationship between the living films and concentrations of the hydrosphere and those on land is very brief. Vernatsky reiterated that life presents an indivisible and indissoluble whole in which all parts are interconnected both among themselves and with the inert and medium of the biosphere, and that the biosphere has existed throughout all geological periods from the most ancient indications of the Archaean. And immediately he restated this conclusion once again in a slightly different form. In its essential traits, the biosphere has always been constituted in the same way. One and the same chemical apparatus created and kept alive by living matter has been functioning continuously in the biosphere throughout geologic times, driven by the uninterrupted current of radiant solar energy. Still, he was not satisfied, and a few paragraphs later carried the conclusion too far. First, he claimed that all the vital films, plankton, bottom, and soil, and all vital concentrations, littoral, sargassic, and freshwater, have always existed. Then he reiterated that the changes in the total mass of living matter could not have been large because the energy input from the sun has been constant, or nearly so, throughout geological time. We now know that both of these conclusions were wrong. At the very end of the book, Vernatsky returned to an idea that he explicitly stated at its very beginning, and that sets him directly against the modern worshippers of blind randomness and selfish genes. We'll further examine this in chapter 3. In the third section of the first essay, he wrote, Ancient religious institutions that considered terrestrial creatures, especially man, to be children of the sun, were far nearer to the truth than is thought by those who see earthly beings as simply ephemeral creations arising from blind and accidental interplay of matter and forces. Creatures on earth are the fruit of extended complex processes and are an essential part of harmonious cosmic mechanism in which it is known that fixed laws apply and chance does not exist. Then he simply but emphatically concluded, but living matter is not an accidental creation. Biosphera and a number of Vernadsky's subsequent writings on this topic entered the canon of Russian science almost immediately. Vernadsky's name, mainly because of his political activities, was well known to Russia's pre-revolutionary intelligentsia. When he returned from Paris as one of the doyens of Russian science, he was 63, but his white beard and his hair made him look older. Although he withdrew from any political activity and refused to join the Communist Party, Vernadsky became known not only to a new generation of scientists brought up by a new state, but also to many ordinary educated Russians and Ukrainians. Knowledge and acceptance of Vernadsky's idea abroad was another matter. The first translation of Biosphera was published by Felix Alcan as early as 1929. In France, Vernadsky's ideas were already fairly well known to fellow specialists in geology and geochemistry, most notably to Pierre Théard de Charin, a Jesuit geologist and paleontologist who later became world-known for his unorthodox theological views and for his more than two decades of work in China. Vernadsky's ideas were also appreciated by the famous French philosopher Henri Bergson and by the mathematician and philosopher Édouard Leroy. Outside France and Germany, and particularly in the English-speaking world, Vernadsky's work remained largely unknown. An abridged English version of Biosfera was finally published in Arizona 60 years after the book's original appearance in 1986, and English readers had to wait another 12 years for a complete translation of Biosfera. After the exile of Trotsky in 1929, Stalin further tightened his grip on the country, and rigid ideological towing of the party line began affecting, though not yet totally controlling, both the Academy of Sciences and Universities. In 1930, Vernadsky was replaced as the director of the Commission of the History of Science by Nikolo Bukharin, who before the decade's end became one of the most prominent victims of Stalin's terror. In 1934, Boris Lichov, Vernadsky's friend and collaborator, collaborator, was arrested and deported. In Keps, Vernadsky's creation going back to the war years was reorganized and attached to Gosplan, the state planning agency whose chief interest lay in maximizing plunder rather than the rational use of the country's vast natural resources. But Vernadsky's scientific stature made it possible for him not only to publish papers in France, but also to attend some scientific meetings. He traveled to France in 1932, 1933, and 1935. 
Throughout the 1930s and early 40s, Vernadsky was engaged in a remarkable range of projects. He wrote on the problems of time in modern science, on radiogeology, on Goethe as a naturalist, on scientific thought, but he kept elaborating his ideas about the biosphere, about its boundaries, and its composition and structure. The two most notable extensions of his original work were a detailed listing of the biosphere's biogeochemical functions and a systemic contrast between living and inert matter of the biosphere that he expressed in an extensive table. Vernadsky's list of biospheric functions reads like many recent enumerations of environmental services. Vernadsky's distinguished nine principal biochemical functions of the biosphere, beginning with the three concerning the atmosphere, the gas function, that is, biogenic formation of atmospheric gases, the oxygen function, the formation of free O2, and the oxygenating function, producing many inorganic compounds. The fourth function was the binding of calcium in both simple and complex compounds by numerous marine organisms, and the fifth was the formation of sulfides, most commonly hydrogen sulfide, H2S, by sulfate-reducing bacteria and iron sulfide, FES2. All organisms, albeit to a different extent, take part in the ubiquitous sixth function of concentrating many elements from the dilute environmental conditions. This process of bioaccumulation is, of course, most obvious in the case of carbon, life's principal carbon building block, but the biomass of many organisms either contain unusually high levels of rare elements or at least binds them in concentrations well above the biospheric mean. The long list of such elements includes, most notably, silicon, calcium, potassium, sodium, nitrogen, iron, manganese, and copper. In contrast, the seventh function, the decomposition of organic compounds, accompanied by the release of carbon dioxide and other gases, is carried out overwhelmingly by bacteria and fungi, and only bacteria perform the eighth function, the decomposition producing such gases as hydrogen sulfide and methane. And all aerobic organisms perform the last of Vernadsky's nine functions, metabolism and oxygen-consuming respiration resulting in carbon dioxide generation and biosynthesis and migration of organic compounds. Vernadsky's 16-point contrast of living and non-living matter in the biosphere, formulated in June 1938, is noteworthy for a number of reasons its systemic sweep, its brevity, and its accurate formulation of several fundamental realities that have since become universally acknowledged attributes of life. Here I will note just one of the most important conclusions, quoting them from the only two English-language publications of Vernadsky's work prepared while he was still, still alive. Evelyn Hutchinson of the Department of Zoology at Yale was responsible for their introduction of Vernadsky's work to the English-speaking world. There's a very cute picture of him, by the way, holding... Uh, something very small and very cute. Um, evidently, Hutchinson is a super important uh, ecologist, and his pictures all involve animals, so that's kind of cute. Hutchinson was the 20th century's most eminent limnologist and founder of the Yale School of Ecology, whose influence is still felt in disciplines ranging from systems ecology to biogeochemistry. Vernadsky's son George, who had been a professor of Russian history at Yale since 1927, translated the work. To begin with, Vernadsky was skeptical, skeptical about life's extraterrestrial origins. Living natural bodies exist only in the biosphere and only as discrete bodies. Their entry into the biosphere from cosmic space is hypothetical and has never been proven. His second point, the unity of life, has received incontrovertible confirmation by modern sequencing of genomes. Living natural bodies in their cellular morphology, protoplasmic nature, and reproductive capacity have a unity which must be connected with their genetic connection with each other in the course of geological time. In contrast, inert natural bodies are extremely diverse and have no common structural or genetic connections. Vernazzi's fourth point puts humanity's role in transforming the Earth into a wider evolutionary context. The rise of the central nervous system has increased the geological role of living matter, notably since the end of the Pleistocene. His sixth point is an excellent definition of what modern general system studies came to call open systems. There is a continual stream of atoms passing to and from living organisms, from and into the biosphere. With the organisms, a vast and changing number of molecules are produced by processes not otherwise known in the biosphere. Inert natural bodies change only from outside causes, with the exception of radioactive materials. 
In his 12th point, Vrindansky expressed this essential quality of life in thermodynamic terms. The processes in living matter tend to increase the free energy of the biosphere. In contrast, all inert processes, save radioactive disintegration, decrease the free energy of the biosphere. This entropic distinction became a key feature of von Bertalfleny's and Schrödinger's definition of life. Von Bertalfleny's Bertalnafi definition reads as follows. The organism is an open system in a quasi-steady state, maintained constant in its mass relations in a continuous change of component material and energies in which material continually enters from and leaves into the outside environment. In the next point, Vernadsky notes that although extremely complicated, the chemical composition of living bodies is definitely more constant than the isomorphous mixtures constituting natural minerals. The 14th point notes that isotropic ratios may be markedly changed by the processes in living matter. This property makes it possible, among other things, to establish the extent and intensity of biogenic contributions to sedimentary rocks throughout the biosphere's evolution. In the closing 16th point, Vernadsky returns to a thermodynamic formulation. The processes of living natural bodies are not reversible in time. In his eighth point, Vernadsky repeated his earlier conclusion that the mass of living organisms has remained fairly unchanged in the course of historical time, and added that apparently this mass increases in the course of geological time toward a limit, and that by the process of occupation of the terrestrial crust by living matter is not yet completed. The process of the occupation of the terrestrial crust by living matter is not yet completed. Obviously, it is now most unlikely that such a process could be completed on a planet that will soon support close to 10 billion people. In the subsequent point, he delimited the maximum size of living bodies to be of the order of 10 to the negative 6 centimeters. The maximum size, the minimum size of living bodies to be of the order of 10 to the negative 6 centimeters. The maximum size has never exceeded n 10 to the 4th. The range, 10 to the 10th, is not great. We now know that some cells are an order of magnitude smaller than this. Besides these elaboration, a large no part of Vernadsky's writing during the last years of his life were devoted to the idea of the noosphere, literally the envelope of the mind. As with the biosphere, Vernadsky was not the originator of the idea, and he readily acknowledged its beginnings in the writing of Yale geologist James Dwight Dana and physiologist and geologist Joseph Leconte, Leconte, who believed that the evolution of living matter is proceeding in a definite direction. Dana called the process cephalization, irregular growth and perfection of the central nervous system culminating in the human brain. Leconte wrote about the psycho psychozoic era. Edouard Leroy, building on Vernadsky's ideas and on discussions with Teilhard de Chardin, came up with the term noosphere, in which he introduced his lectures at the Collège de France in 1927. Vernadsky saw the concept as a natural extension of his own ideas, predating Leroy's choice of the term. In one of his French lectures in 1925, identifying humanity as a new geological, perhaps even cosmic force resulting from human intelligence. To illustrate the impact of this new geological force that had emerged quite imperceptibly and over a relatively short, at least in evolutionary terms, period of time, he noted that the mineralogical rarity, native iron, is now being produced by the billions of tons. Native aluminum, which has never before existed on our planet, is now produced in any quantity. The same is true with regard to the countless numbers of artificial chemical combinations newly created on our planet. Vernadsky was aware of the price paid for this project, as the aerial envelope of the land, as well as all of its natural waters, are changed both physically and chemically. During the 20th century, humanity, for the first time ever, permeated the whole biosphere, and instant communications enveloped the entire planet. Vernadsky perceived man to be striving to emerge beyond the boundaries of his planet into cosmic space, and, he added, he probably will do so. Vernadsky, the empiricist, thus saw the idea of the noosphere as an accurate description of existing and even more so of coming realities. Humanity adds up to an insignificantly small share of the Earth's living matter and its environmental, indeed planetary, impact is derived not from its matter, but from its brain. If man does not use his brain in his work for self-destruction, an immense future is open before him. Significantly, Vernadsky also put a great stress on the unity of mankind. 
one cannot oppose with impunity the principle of the unity of all men as a law of nature i use here the phrase law of nature as this term is used more and more in the physical and chemical sciences in the sense of an empirical generalization established with precision the conclusion was then clear the noosphere is the last of many stages in the evolution of the biosphere in geological history after Vernadsky's death on January 6, 1945, a number of his pupils and followers in Russia continued work based on his ideas, and they prepared his collecting writings for publication. The Institute of Geochemistry and Analytical Chemistry of the Academy of Sciences, a research vessel, and a Ukrainian research station in Ararka, as well as streets and squares in Russia and Ukraine, carry Vernadsky's name. But neither his name nor his idea of the biosphere became widely known abroad. In 1948, Evelyn Hutchinson, who, as noted above, introduced Vernadsky's work to the American scientists in 1945, published a short article on living in the biosphere in Scientific Monthly. After offering a variant on Vernadsky's definition of the biosphere, Hutchinson noted that besides the customary division of resources, if raw materials and energy used within the biosphere, there is also a third very important though inseparable aspect, namely the pattern of distribution most fossil sunlight or chemical energy of carbonaceous matter is diffused through sedimentary rocks in such a way as to be useless to us i am almost tempted to regard pattern as being fundamental a gift of nature as sunlight or the chemical elements hutchinson also stressed his concerns about the wastefulness of modern society in which laboriously collected materials are after brief use discarded and most non-combustible waste is eventually carried in solution or as sediment to the ocean Modern man, then, is a very effective, effective agent of zoogenous erosion, affecting most powerfully arable soils, forests, accessible mineral deposits, and other parts of the biosphere which provide the things that Homo sapiens as a mammal and as an educatable social organism needs or thinks he needs. The process is continuously increasing in intensity as populations expand. But it took another two decades before concerns about the state of the Earth's environment made biosphere an indispensable term of modern scientific understanding. Widespread adoption of Vernadsky's idea of the biosphere and common use of the term as one of the key operative words of modern scientific thought came from a combination of diverse developments that focused attention on the state and the fragility of the Earth's environment. Concerns about environmental pollution on scales ranging from local to global led to new legislative initiatives and international treaties and scientific advances in a number of disciplines demonstrating clearly the unity of the global environment and the necessity of its protection. The first major shift of attitudes towards environmental pollution resulted from the dependence of modern high-energy civilization on the combustion of coal. Episodes of severe air pollution caused by high concentrations of particulate matter and SO2 caused premature deaths among infants and the elderly and led to the passing of relatively strict anti-pollution laws. The British Clean Air Act of 1956 and the corresponding U.S. legislation of the same name in 1963, radioactive fallout from atmospheric testing of increasingly powerful nuclear weapons and the resulting global health hazard, especially to the unborn and babies, was terminated when the United States, Soviet Union, and United Kingdom signed the Test Ban Treaty in August 1963. On the Soviet side, the movement toward the treaty started in 1957, when Andrei Dmitrovich Sakharov, the creator of the country's hydrogen bomb, wrote an article on the effects of low-level radiation and then persisted in lobbying the Communist Party leadership to conclude the treaty. <clears throat> Ubiquitous use of pesticides, and particularly the concerns raised about long-term and long-range effects of DDT on biota, was a major reason for Rachel Carson's writing Silent Spring. These concerns were soon followed by additional concerns about other persistent organic pollutants and by Patterson's findings of very high lead contamination in humans, stemming from the presence of this heavy metal in gasoline, solder, paint, and pesticides. Concern about the effects of pesticides is still very much with us, whereas exposure to lead has been greatly reduced through its elimination from gasoline and paints. By far the most notable international scientific event of the 1950s was the International Geophysical Year conceived by Lloyd Berkner in 1950. It took place between July 1957 and December 1958 to coincide with the high point of the 11-year cycle solar activity. 
Measurements taken during that period range from seismological investigations and soundings of the ocean floor to observations of stratospheric dynamics. They span literally the entire planet, including the establishment of permanent U.S. South Pole Station and involve the participation of 67 countries. Of course, 1957 was also the year of the Earth's first artificial satellite, and the small beeping Sputnik was soon followed by our first weather-observing platform, FIROSI, Television Infrared Observing Satellite sent its first fuzzy image on April 1st, 1960, and Tiro's satellites have been monitoring the clouds ever since. 1957 was also the year when a paper by Roger Revelle and Hans Swiss launched the sustained investigation of the greenhouse gas phenomena. Revelle and Swiss concluded that human beings are now carrying out a large-scale geophysical experiment of a kind that could not have happened in the past nor be reproduced in the future. Within a few centuries, we are returning to the atmosphere and oceans. The concentrated organic carbon stored in sedimentary rocks over hundreds of millions of years. The first systemic measurements of rising background CO2 levels were organized by Charles Keeling in 1958 at the Mauloa, Hawaii, and at the South Pole. Planning for the International Biological Program began in 1959, and its decade of work took place between 1964 and 1974. The program's principal goals were to investigate the productivity of terrestrial, freshwater, and marine ecosystems, particular production processes, human adaptability and use, and management of mainly genetic resources. Several synthesis volumes resulting from the program introduced unprecedented global perspectives, particularly to the study of major terrestrial ecosystems, including the two final syntheses, Braemeyer and Van Dyne, for grassland ecosystems and Reichel for forests. In 1968, the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization convened as an intergovernmental conference of experts on use and conservation of the biosphere in Paris. In the introduction to the conference's published proceedings, Kovoda et al. summarized Vernadsky's key ideas and presented the latest quantitative estimates of major biogeochemical flows, the Earth's total biomass, and the productivity of its main ecosystems. This conference led to the establishment of UNESCO's Man and the Biosphere program three years later. Two decades after that, this program continues interdisciplinary research and training, now with particular emphasis on more than 300 biosphere reserves in 85 countries. The first detailed maps of the ocean floor showing the global system of undersea ridges were also published during the 1960s, and they were followed by a rapid acceptance of the idea of plate tectonics. Isn't that funny that it plate tectonics weren't actually accepted until the 1960s. How funny. This new geological paradigm made it possible to understand the global nature of the grand processes that form the continents and ocean floor. The late 1960s and the early 1970s brought a number of inquiries into the interactions of population, resources, and the environment, most notably a sweeping survey by Ehrlich et al. Two new large-scale environmental worries emerged during that same period as Swedish scientists identified the process of ecosystem acidification, and Baron Commoner wrote about the consequences of human interference in the nitrogen cycle through rising applications of synthetic fertilizers. That's a really important thing for wastewater treatment, by the way. Our water is so full of nitrogen and the treatment options are relatively limited for um, non-point source nitrogen-contaminated waters. It's, it's an interesting field. The same period also saw the first extended space flights. Gemini's 10 missions between March 1965 and November 1966 were a transitional step between the pioneering Mercury flights and 11 Apollo launches that culminated in six moon landings. Gemini and Apollo images showed the thinness of the Earth's blue atmosphere above the planet's curved surface, and nothing could illustrate better the unity and the fragility of life than the first photographs of the entire Earth taken by the Apollo crews, those unforgettable mixtures of the planet's whites, blues, browns, against the blackness of the cosmic void in the images taken to their journey to the moon. All of these varied strands contributed to a new wave of rising environmental consciousness, and the publication of a special issue of Scientific American in September 1970 was undoubtedly a key event articulating those concerns. Entitled simply The Biosphere, with a detail from The Dream, Henri Rousseau's famous oil painting of tangled tropical rainforest plants and lurking beasts on its cover, the issue finally made the term widely known even among non-biologists. 
Evelyn Hutchinson introduced the biosphere in a masterly overview of the subject, explaining how Earth's thin film of life is sustained by energy flows and by grand biogeochemical cycles. Hutchinson defined three ingredients that make the biosphere special. as terrestrial envelope, existence of liquid water in large quantities, an ample supply of external energy, and the interfaces between liquid, solid, and gaseous states of matter. He stressed the fragility and the inefficiency of the photosynthetic process that is responsible for creating all but a tiny fraction of living matter and its dependence on movement and cycling of numerous elements. Hutchinson recognized that if we want to continue living in the biosphere, we must also introduce unprecedented processes but in conclusion, he was extremely pessimistic about the prospect of extended human life on Earth. Many people, however, are concluding on the basis of mounting and reasonably objective evidence that the length of life of the biosphere as an inhospitable, inhabitable region for organisms is to be measured in decades rather than in millions of years. This is entirely the fault of our own species. It would seem not unlikely that we are approaching a crisis that is comparable to the one that occurred when free oxygen began to accumulate in the atmosphere. But the last three decades of the 20th century brought some signs of hope. Although most of the human onslaughts that Hutchinson's lamented have continued, and some have even intensified, there has been a rise of unprecedented awarenesses of the biosphere's unique qualities of its longevity, complexity, diversity, resilience, and fragility, and a growing realization of the necessity to limit its degradation and to protect its integrity. Satellite observations have played a particularly important role in fostering the idea of the unique and unified biosphere and its vulnerability. The ability to observe natural processes on a planetary scale from the Earth's satellites advanced rapidly during the last 40 years of the 20th century. After the pioneering Tiros weather satellites came the Nimbus series, launched into a sun-synchronous orbit, a polar orbit, in this case with 99-degree inclination, in which the satellite crosses the equator at the same local solar time, these satellites could scan the entire Earth. In 1966, application technology satellites, ATS, began to be placed into geostationary orbit near the equator, 36,000 kilometers above the Earth, where they match its rotation speed and remain over a fixed point on the surface. Six ATS satellites were launched between 1966 and 1974. They could scan the entire visible hemisphere and send the image in less than half an hour, and their successive scans could be used to generate moving sequences of cloud systems and pressure cells. For the first time ever, we could see the Earth's entire atmosphere in motion. As revealing as these satellites were for studying the Earth's dynamic atmosphere, their resolution was of no help in investigating the biosphere's most obvious manifestation, the annual ebb and flow of photosynthesis by forests, grasslands, croplands, and wetlands, and the anthropogenic change of areas covered by natural ecosystems. That changed with the launching of the first Earth Resources Satellite, ERTS, which was sent into polar orbit July 23, 1971, making 14 revolutions a day at an altitude of 900 kilometers and passing over the same spot every 18 days. Although its three-color TV cameras failed shortly after launch, the satellite's multispectral scanning systems recorded reflected radiation in four different spectral bands between 0.5 and 0.1 micrometers with a resolution of 80 meters. Chlorophyll reflects less than 20% of the longest wavelength of visible light, but about 60% of near-infrared radiation. These differences in reflectance can be used to distinguish vegetated and barren areas, to perform relatively de detailed ecosystem mapping and, when backed by good ground observations, to estimate total phytomass. Landsat, as the satellite was soon renamed, produced land use data with a degree of resolution sufficient for a fairly reliable mapping of ecosystems and their changes. A second Landsat followed in January 1975, a third in 1978, and Landsat D, launched in 1982, carried not just an improved MSS but also a thematic mapper with a resolution of 30 meters. The la latest Landsat, Landsat 7, was launched in April 1999. Its multispectral scanner has once again a resolution of 30 meters, but its new panchromatic images have a re resolution of 15 meters, and it is equipped with thermal infrared sensors and a resolution of 60 meters. Standardized false color images derived from MSS with hues ranging from red magenta for dense vegetation to blue-gray of populated areas 
have provided a view of the Earth that is more than just visually stunning. The first two worldwide selections of these images are the short... Oh, that's not important. Landsat imagery has made it possible to monitor shifts in the desert margins in the Sahel and the snow and ice cover in the Arctic to determine the abundance of icebergs in Antarctica, to identify new seismic faults in California, and new crustal features in South Africa, to map tropical deforestation in Amazonia, to chronicle the expansion of urban areas, and to estimate crop yields in China and Russia. The French system Probatoire pour l'observation de la Terre flying since 1985, reveal details at a resolution of 10 to 20 meters, and U.S. intelligence satellites have for many years relayed images with resolution between below 15 centimeters. These images remain classified, but the multispectral 4-meter resolution color images and panchromatic 1-meter images from the Iconos 2 satellite launched on September 24, 1999, are now commercially available. Obviously, this imagery is too detailed for any global observation, and monitoring with resolution far lower than that of even the Landsat's MSS has brought the most convenient and now most widely used method of charting the ebb and flow of global photosynthesis. An advanced, very high-resolution radiometer was installed for the first time in 1978 on the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's Tiros-N and has been put aboard the series polar orbiting out satellites ever since, with the latest, NOAA-KL and M, carrying an advanced version. I am going to skip over all this because it is not that important. It's very interesting that we have all these satellites, but I do not want to read them. So uh, there is a whole list of satellites and interesting things that we're doing as far as imagery. The Massachusetts Institute of Technology sponsored the first interdisciplinary attempt at a systemic evaluation of the global environmental problems in the summer of 1970. The study's list of key problems included emissions of carbon dioxide from fossil fuel combustion, particulate matter in the atmosphere, cirrus clouds from jet aircraft, the effect of supersonic planes on stratospheric chemistry, thermal pollution of waters, DDT and related pesticides, mercury and other toxic heavy metals, oil in the ocean, and nutrient enrichment of coastal waters, only the effects of supersonic planes would not make today's list, as the expensive and wasteful Concorde remains the only supersonic transport in even limited operation. The U.S. Boeing project to develop a supersonic aircraft was canceled by Congress shortly after the SCEP meeting. The other concerns, however, are still very much with us. The first ever global meeting devoted solely to the environment was the UN-organized Conference on the Human Environment in Stockholm in 1972, dominated by national concerns and political posturing rather than any cooperative attempts at environmental protection. Although the host country's report focused on acid rain, Brazil asserted its right to engage in extensive tropical deforestation, and Maoist China claimed to be free of any environmental problems. Establishment of the United Nations Environmental Program was one of the few tangible outcomes of the meeting. OPEC's quintupling, quintupling of oil prices in 1974 and additional quid quadrupling in 1979 and 80 diverted the world's attention from environmental concerns to matter of energy supply, inflation, and economic stagnation. But as those worries eased, environmental awareness intensified during the 1980s, particularly after 1986. Throughout the decade, a wide range of traditional concerns, air, water pollution, hazardous and radioactive waste, pesticide residues, soil erosion, we're receiving more research and legislative attention, some of them because of major environmental mishaps. These included the dioxin release in Seveso near Milan in 1976, massive methyl isocyanate poisoning in Bhopal in 1984, and the Chernobyl nuclear disaster in 1986, and they brought more attention to the lasting problems of toxic waste and safety of nuclear energy generation. Higher concentrations and more frequent occurrence of petrochemical smog in large cities of every continent and the rising demand for municipal and industrial water supplies made it clear that most of the effort to reduce air and water pollution still lay ahead, but a new class of truly global environmental concerns rapidly became prominent. Although many other factors played their part, increasing recognition of the three kinds of global environmental change was largely responsible for the emergence of concerns on the biospheric scale. The first was an increasing realization that the conversions of natural ecosystems in general, and extensive tropical deforestation in particular, are causing an unprecedented loss of biodiversity. 
The second key impulse was the discovery of a substantial seasonal weakening of the ozone layer above Antarctica, and the third main cause was a revival of concerns about global climate change driven by increasing emissions of greenhouse gases that might lead to a rapid rate of planetary warming with both its predictable and its unknown consequences. Concatenation of these worries elevated global environmental change to a leading item of international policymaking. The Brundtland Report of 1987 uh, and the Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro in 1992 were the two most talked about political responses, though each had, not surprisingly, very limited practical consequences. By far the most effective practical response was a rapid conclusion of an international treaty to phase out production and use of chlorofluorocarbons responsible for the light loss of stratospheric ozone. The Vienna Convention for the Protection of Ozone Layer was concluded in March 1985, and the Montreal Pro Protocol designed to phase out ozone-depleting substances was signed in 1987, just two years after the discovery of the seasonal ozone loss above the Antarctic. Institutionalized scientific response to global environmental change included the establishment of numerous large-scale research programs that have been known by their acronyms. International Geosphere Biosphere Program in 1986 was set up with the mission of describing and understanding the interactive processes and changes that regulate the Earth's environment and make it suitable for life, as well as the human impacts on this complex planetary system. The acronomic maze of IGPB's core projects include a number of things that I'm not going to read because it seems silly. From the start, the IPGB collaborated closely with World Climate Research Program to set up in 1980 by the World Meteorological Organization and with the International Human Dimension of Global Environmental Change Program. But the cooperative effort that has received perhaps the greatest intention attention during 1990s has been the Intergovernmental Program on Climate Change set up by the WNO and UNPP to prepare periodic reviews of the state-of-the-art of climate change research and to evaluate a wide range of possible environmental, economic, and social consequences of changing climate. Its reports, resulting from extensive international exchanges between hundreds of natural and social scientists, have been widely quoted and also intensely debated and they form the principal input into lengthy continuing negotiations about limits on greenhouse gas emissions. All major and a large number of smaller countries now participate in various components of global environmental research. Besides climatic change, the principal topics of such research now embrace global energy and biogeochemical cycles and budgets, photosynthetic productivity and biomass storage of major ecomass ecosystems, changes of stratospheric ozone and the effects of ultraviolet B radiation on biota, various atmospheric aerosols of volcanic vegetation and combustion aerosol origins, mapping of global land use and its changes, inventories of biodiversity status and degradation, particularly erosions of croplands and gra grasslands, and land-ocean interactions in coastal zones. Another manifestation of this globalization of environmental studies has been the emergence of new journals explicitly devoted to the Earth's entire environment and to its link with other events and processes. There are a series of magazines that I'm not going to read. <clears throat> but scientific understanding will have to be translated into universal and effective action if we are to preserve the biosphere's integrity. The idea of planetary management may seem preposterous to many, but at this time in history, there is no rational alternative. In closing his introduction to the biosphere in 1970, Evelyn Hutchinson cited from Vernadsky's letter written shortly before his death to Alexand Alexander Petrukevich. I look forward with great optimism. I think that we are experiencing not only a historical change, but a planetary one as well. We live in a transition to the noosphere. Unfortunately, Hutchinson commented, the quarter century since those words were written has shown how mindless most of the changes wrought by man on the biosphere have been. Nonetheless, Vernadsky's transition in its deepest sense is, only, is the only alternative to man's cutting his lifetime short by millions of years. I agree with Hutchinson's assessment. Although the task is such that even adjectives like awesome and immense are completely inadequate for describing its complexity and duration, we have no choice unless we are willing to accept an early demise of our species. We have already altered the biosphere to such an extent that the only rational way out is to understand as best as possible its intricate functions and then to make sure that the future changes we inflict on the global environment will remain within tolerable limits. Obviously, the collective role of human consciousness will be essential if this, is un if this unprecedented process of planetary management is to succeed. Uh, we'll return to this topic in Chapter 9. 
Although it would be easy to be highly pessimistic about the prospect of success of such a monumental undertaking, it is also necessary to recognize the far from insignificant progress we've already made in understanding some of the essentials. We now have both global and virtually instant coverage of just about every essential biospheric variable, and a large part of this fascinating information is accessible on the internet. In the case of some variables, it is now possible to survey a generation, 20 to 25 years of changes. New perspective afforded by this global and repetitive coverage have brought both good and bad news. They've made it possible to refute claims about the southward march of the Sahara, to quantify for first time the reasonable accuracy annual losses of Brazil's unique tropical rainforest, and to show that many populous low-income countries, and China in particular, has substantially more farmland than the total given by the official statistics. The combination of global monitoring and expanding computer capabilities has also resulted in a variety of increasingly more complex simulations of complex biospheric realities. Three-dimensional models of global atmospheric circulation are used not only in routine weather forecasting, but also in modeling long-term shifts in the southern oscillation, El Nino phenomenon, and forecasting changes arising from different concentrations of greenhouse gases. The ultimate and still rather distant goal is a coupling of terrestrial, hydrospheric, and atmospheric modeling in realistic simulations of the biospheric behavior. As imperfect as our understanding remains, science is well ahead of effective action. The rapid conclusion and subsequent successful implementation of the Montreal Treaty banning the production and use of chlorofluorocarbons is an example, unfortunately an untypical one, of what can be done. The unprecedented international agreement represented by the Montreal Treaty was so swift and so effective because the action was guided by solid scientific understanding and because commercial alternatives to CFCs were readily available. Neither is true in the case of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Our understanding of the inherent complexities of the biospheric carbon cycle and of factors involved in global climactic change remains inadequate. Too often we can do no better than narrow down the numbers within a factor of two. And there are no ready large-scale substitute either for fossil fuels, the largest anthropogenic sources of carbon dioxide and methane, or for nitrogen fertilizers, the leading source of nitrous oxide. Consequently, we have been unable to offer any firm guidance for effective management on a global scale. I will return to these challenges in more detail at the closing chapter of the book. Now I'll begin to a systematic coverage of the biosphere, probing first the probability of life in the universe, and then looking at life's evolution and metabolism before exploring the biosphere's extent, mass, productivity, and grand scale organization.